0: My grandfather, whose father had survived the potato famine on Gerta Moore, used to say the words Black 47, Black 1847, with such almost awe, fear, pain. I said, let's call it Black 47, because we knew we were going to be political. And to us, or to me anyway, Black 47 was like the Jewish refrain, never again and that was how we formed that was
1: larry kerwin rock musician novelist and our first guest with a show on broadway and i'm john lee
2: and i'm martin nutty and welcome to another episode of irish stew the podcast for the global irish nation this episode of irish stew is brought to you by murph guide the new york city nightlife website Connecting the fun to the fun people. Visit murfguide.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. And I'm joined with my partner in crime, John Lee. John, who have we got coming up? Hey, Martin, we're, we're starting off season four strong here with our
1: third great guest in a row. And this guest, as I thought about him, he's probably the best known guest we've had on. He's certainly known by more different audiences than anybody we've had on. It's, you know, rock and roll fans know him as the front, front man for the Celtic rock band Black 47, you know, complete with exper- uh, performances on the big late-night talk shows in America, Jay, Jay Leno, David Letterman, and others. Uh, radio pe- listeners know his Celtic Crush radio show on Sirius XM. Uh, newspaper readers follow his regular column in the Irish Echo. His fellow artists at the Irish American Writers and Artists know him from the, uh, his leadership of that excellent organization, and I got to know Larry serving on the board with him there. Theatergoers enjoyed his work at The Cell, The Irish Rep, and now Broadway with the multiple Tony Award nominated Paradise Square. And they know his writing through his memoir, Green Queen. (laughs) Let me try that again. They they know him through his memoir, Green Suede Shoes, and his highly personal history of Irish music. his novels, most recently, Rockaway Blue, which we'll talk about. Yes, I am actually talking about just one person, the pride of Wexford, Ireland, and now of New York. A passport-holding citizen of the global Irish nation. Welcome, Larry Kerwin.
0: John and Martin, it is great to be in the stew. I, I seem like I've been here all my life, but here I am on the Irish stew.
1: Yeah, you know, you were on Letterman and Leno and now the stew. So that really, you know, that kind of caps off the career. I don't know if you have to do anything else after this. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Larry, let let me start you off with this. I read something where you were talking about being on the bandstand with Black 47. And you made a comment about, but you know, essentially what you were hearing on the stage wasn't what the audience was hearing. And it was more of a it was more of a, a comment about the way the, the monitors are set up and, and you're hearing this, these, these instruments louder than the audience would hear them. And it, it got me thinking, though, about sort of artistic uh endeavors in general. You know, to what extent are you trying to get the audience to hear what you're hearing, your voices, the emotions, the stories in your head? And to what extent are you leaving the audience space, you know, kind of to add their own voices to, to the message, their, their own experience around your work?
0: Well, that, that's a really good question. So, when you're on stage, uh, you're hearing what you want to hear. Uh, not necessarily it's exactly what you want to hear, but you're hearing your voice. For me, I'm hearing the drummer, the kick drum especially, and the hi-hat. That's how I I use the beats. You don't have to listen for a snare drum because it's big anyway. And I'm hearing my guitar. But on the right, I would be hearing uh the horns in the distance. And on the left, I'm hearing the Ilan Pipes with um, Black 47. So I'm kind of mixing it internally in my head. But... The sound man is mixing it for the audience. Um, but in reality, I don't really think about what the audience is hearing. I do technically that the sound is good, that they can hear the voice and hear all the instruments, but I'm not that concerned what they're hearing message-wise or song-wise. I'm concerned that what I've written is coming across um, it's up to them and up to every person to take in what the sound is and through their prism and you one thing i, I realized early on is you've no control over that a person can be hearing things in a different way each night so in a in a different way that was probably the message of black 47 we're setting out Uh, a set of circumstances for you, say, with James Connolly, which is one of the big Blackbird 7 songs, you're giving the facts of his life and how he is deciding to revolt against the British in 1916, even though being a realist, he probably knows this is suicide. So what's going on in Connolly's mind, that's what I'm trying to get to the audience, so, I'm kind of like a method actor up there. Sometimes I don't even want to do Connolly on stage because I don't want to go through his trauma on that night. When I do it, uh, I'm fine with it. But I might, my own psyche might say, I'm not into Connolly tonight, man. You know, mm-hmm. even me, you know. And that's the way, uh, that was Black Seven's message. Here are the details, you figure it out. Mm. Larry,
2: I'm going to roll it back, but not as far as James Connolly in 1916. Tell me about your Wexford childhood. Uh, You were born, I believe, in Wexford town, and as I understand it, you lived with your grandfather. Uh, Tell me a bit about that
0: childhood. It it seems extraordinary now, but it wasn't totally extraordinary at the time, but in Wexford, anyway, and probably all throughout Ireland uh, at that period, which was about my 50s, 60s, um, when one of a grandparent would die, the eldest son or the eldest daughter, gender-wise, depending on which had died, in my case, I was the eldest son, and I went to live with my grandfather. Even though my parents were living in the same town. So I slept in my grandfather's house, had breakfast there. I would go home to my parents for dinner, which was at 1 p.m. at school time. And then after school, I would go back to my grandparents' house and live there. So it was, it was a strange upbringing and a strange upbringing anyway, because, um, my grandparents were on different sides in the, uh, Political-wise, my maternal grandfather was extremely Republican. My uh, paternal grandfather, his brother had died in the First World War. And it was only until I was about 16, I, didn't, I never realized that I had never seen these two gentlemen in the same room together. <laughs> they always found a way to not be around each other. So they they handled it and their differences in it. In a very uh humane and gentlemanly manner, even though they totally disagreed, which is something I often find wanting in America now. I mean the difference between Republicans and Democrats has nothing like the uh Irish Civil war so on top of that i had a gr- I had a father who was a merchant marine and was gone usually for six months a year and then would come home for two three months at a time. And he was an atheist. <laughs> so in Wexford at that point, everyone, it was like being in Iran. Everyone believed in Catholicism. My father didn't. He thought it was all, he didn't bother even disputing it. It was like, that's okay for you people here, but I've been out in the real world. And I know such things are, you know, horseshit, basically, was his way of looking at it so i had to maneuver between all these different points of view um so i think artistically um that set me up in a way to 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 see different things through your prism to to see different points of view like i could go into my uh republican grandfather's house and be totally on the Republican side, and then I could go to my other grandfather's house and see things through um the free state side and even the british side and then my my father uh he worked for British shipping all the time all his life and um so you had to adapt that didn't mean I didn't have my own uh principles and everything, but I learned how to adapt. And I think that helped me when I came to New York because I came, I didn't come for economics. I came for adventure and to create. And I went to live straight away on the Lower East Side on Avenue B and Third Street, which was the center. That block was the center of heroin dealing in New York. What year was this, Larry? That was, uh, 72. Mm, mm. And then uh, I moved out of there for a while, and then I moved back in the 80s. I was on the same block when heroin totally exploded in that area. So you, you had to learn how to deal with so many people. And I was living in a building where I was the only, uh, pretty much the only white person in there. It was Puerto Rican, Dominican, and African American. And I loved it. I learned about those cultures and I was able to write about them. Say so for instance in Paradise Square, it wasn't a big stretch to create for me to create black characters because I'd lived I'd lived the life. You know, I could go up to the Bronx and be playing in an all Irish place occasionally when I did that. But at the same time then I came home to Avenue B and Third Street, and I was like living in Saint, San Juan, or you know, living down south uh, with African Americans, and I loved it. I still love New York for that reason that you can be amongst so many people and learn from them.
1: I lived on uh, off of Union Square, I think. Uh about 1980, 81, and I didn't make too many ventures over to uh, Avenue B and C.
0: It was a wild area. You know, you had to make a decision many times whether to keep walking and tough out what's coming towards you or take to your heels and <laughs> have to run for it. You know? mm. I once got held up and I was on a date. I can't believe I took this young woman into Tompkins Square in the nighttime, and I got assaulted, or I got, I got held up by a junkie who held stuck a bayonet. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was like about a foot long, and his hand was shaking, and the, oh. the knife was on my the tip of the knife was on my Adam's apple, and I had to talk him down to actually give him the money because we we had come to an impasse. He didn't he wanted my money, but he didn't want me to put my hands in my pockets. I was, how do I <laughs> do this? <man?" laughs> Meanwhile, the girl I was with, the young woman, was saying to the the junkie, You shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. And I'm gonna say, be quiet.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm this
0: under control. I'm the one with the blame yeah. in my throat. <laughs> we finally worked it out myself and the junkie guy, and partly it was because I knew the scene. I knew what it was like to be in that position.
2: We're not going to use this particular segment as uh, advertising material, I think, to, you know, visiting the Big Apple. It's from, although it is probably a bit dated. Um, I read your piece in Colin Broderick's book on uh, the Irish writers of New York. And you kind of write about that time at a place called a Kiwi. Oh. And, um, yes. Did that, I, I believe it existed. Oh, yeah. um, and you talk about a murder. Um, did that happen? Was there a murder? Uh, or is that you're uh, using, you know, uh, the fictional side of your writing efforts?
0: Well, uh, to be frank, something did happen there, and I couldn't be totally frank with mm-hmm. what had happened because uh I wasn't sure if the people involved were still alive or not so it behooved me to um to use it in in a more allegorical way um but something did happen and I used it in a song called Blood Wedding which I think is one of the best Black 47 songs, maybe because I did move the facts around a bit and I had to change names. And uh, yeah, the Kiwi was a remarkable place. Uh, I lived at that point across the street on 9th Street between 1st and A. And we always had problems with uh, the boiler breaking down in the wintertime and we were going to have a, a rent strike, and which was kind of dangerous <laughs> because <laughs> I wasn't quite sure who the um, the landlord was connected with. Um, but he came up with a solution. He said, I'm going to get this spoiler fixed eventually. But in the meantime, uh, I'm going to introduce you guys to the Kiwi across the street and get you all memberships there. So it's an all, it's a 24 hour drinking spot. So if things get really cold at night, you can go over there. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good idea because I didn't want to pursue the strike too much for this guy. He was, he was dangerous too. And that was basically a black and Puerto Rican, um, uh, drinking establishment and went for 24 hours. And, uh, you usually went in around four in the morning and stayed till you know whatever time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was my university of the streets. I learned so much in that place, and it would help me actually with Paradise Square. I realized afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, something happened, and I'm still not sure whether those people are alive or not. So. Hey, well, why don't we take this moment then to hear a little clip of a blood wedding.
4: Ali liz waiting down on Sia-Nine In Mantil and liz, and her lover's is nigh. Cries out for revenge, she is silent like a stone Beautiful in her widow's weeds I wait in the darkness, forever now alone Too late for any tears shedding While his bride waits down on c 9
2: Larry, tell me about your musical beginnings. Was that in the East Village, or I believe it predated that? You, You started playing music back in your hometown of Wexford.
0: Yeah, I played folk music, and I joined a show band, and... Pierce Turner and I were in that show band together. It was run by a remarkable Wexford guy called Johnny Reck, C K, And uh, he would take young people and put them in the band. And you traveled around and played dances. And it was was a great way to learn about music in show bands because you had to learn whatever was in um, the top 20, you had to learn it no matter what style it was. And you had to learn to play in every key because there were brass players in the band. And because of brass and guitar being slightly different tuning-wise, you had to learn how to play in keys that, uh, say, folk singers would never play in. You kind of had to play in jazz keys and uh, in sharps and flats. So th- that was a great way of... Um, of learning about music. And then I moved to Dublin and had some musical adventures there. But I was always on for coming to New York and I'd seen Midnight Cowboy and I thought, I can handle a piece of that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So, uh, Chris Turner and I eventually emigrated to New York and we had a, a group called Turner and Kerwin of Wexford one of the hardest names ever to say. And we were very original. We were using Moog synthesizers and all sorts of effects and mixing in uh, our our own songs into it. But at the same time, we were playing in Irish bars in the Bronx and in Queens and in Brooklyn. Um, And we could play any type of music. We were both uh, experienced in that. So... We became popular as that. We had a an album that came out, I think, in 1978 called Absolutely and Completely, which we're going to re-release soon. And that got played all over the country, and it was highly original kind of music.
3: Larry, is,
1: is, is this the band that was uh, considered too demonic to play at CBGB's?
0: <laughs> yes, indeed.
1: <laughs> Hard to
0: imagine. <laughs> 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 there were a lot of times, you know, it was it was a different New York. You know, you could meet people like David Bowie. You could meet him and hang out with him. I knew jo- Joe Strummer from The Clash, you know. It, it wasn't a place for security. People had security around them. And it was a dan- much far more dangerous city, but people didn't uh, have security with them. So you could go up to someone and meet them. Then we... um we became a new wave band, um, punk band called Major Thinkers. And then in 1985, on St. Patrick's Night, we played our last gig. And I went on to become a playwright. I decided to get out of the music business and really become a playwright. That's what I had wanted to do for a while. And Pierce went on to a, a successful um solo career. And we're still great friends. Um so for four years then I didn't really play music except to play improv music with a poet called Copernicus and with a a loose band of friends called Chill Faction, where we would get together on a Monday night and smoke a lot of weed, drink a lot of beer, and then come up with songs by just improv So that, that was the type of music I was playing while becoming a playwright and learning the trade, really re- learning the craft and learning how to direct and produce uh, my own plays. And uh, I did that for four years. And then one night I met Chris Byrne, uh, a New York detective sergeant in a place called Paddy Riley's. He was playing with uh, his band Beyond the Pale. Now, I, I hadn't been near Irish people in four years. It was kind of strange. I was I was living in Soho at this point and raising a family too and becoming a playwright. When When you become a playwright, you have to totally immerse yourself in that world to become any good at it. It's, it's a 24-7 kind of experience. So I took a walk. I thought I was having a mental breakdown one night when I was here on my own. <laughs> I, I decided to walk to Eamon Duran's up in the 50s uh, from Canal Street. But I passed by Patty Riley's on the way, and I heard this music, and I went in. And Chris recognized me from the major thinkers and Turner and Kerwin. And he asked me to come up and sing a song. I thought, no, no, no. <laughs> I haven't even picked up the guitar in a while. But the barmaid, Dimpin' and McDonald, in Patty Riley said, I know what you need. And I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> she said, you handed me a shot of Irish whiskey. I thought she might have meant something else. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I took a couple of shots of Irish whiskey and went up and played with Chris. and we played for uh, maybe an hour, an hour and a half, oh, yeah. like that. And then later that night, I could tell Chris was in a, not in a great mood. We were drinking at the bar. I said, what's the matter? And he said, well, I have all these gigs, and Beyond the Pale is breaking up tonight. And I was thinking, wow, I didn't even realize that. And he said, no, we didn't tell anyone. And uh, I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, well, i got no one to play the gigs with. And I said, I'll do it. Wow. And that was how Black 47 Mm. And he said, What name should we call it? And my grandfather, whose father had survived the potato famine on Gertam Moore, used to say the words Black Forty Seven, Black 1847, with such almost awe fear, pain. Um I said, let's call it Black Forty Seven, because we knew we were gonna be political and uh to us or to me anyway black 47 was kind of like the jewish refrain never again and uh that was how we formed. Mm.
1: Well, I re- really hearing like a lot of improvisation throughout your life and uh also uh, a do it yourself mindset. I mean I from what I understand you just, you never took uh, music lessons, you never took playwriting lessons, you never took classes for novel writing. Uh, you worked through it and you, and you figured figured these things out.
0: Yeah, you, you have to, unless you're going to be apprenticed to someone great, I think it's a dangerous thing. Um, because I, I was only interested in I mean, I I love all types of music and everything, and I can appreciate all types of music, but I was really only interested in creating my own music or my own plays. So I think going to school for things, going to college to learn to write, you you stand a real good chance of having a teacher uh, dictate to you in some form or other what your writing should be like. And for me, it just made a lot more sense to get out on the streets, especially in New York. When I see people walking around New York with earphones plugged in, I think you gotta be crazy. Apart mm-hmm. from the fact that in the seventies and eighties, you probably got killed. <laughs> um, there's a, there's a rhythm and a beat to New York City that As a as a creative person, if you're not plugged into that, you're missing out on so much. You just have to listen for it. I mean, you can hear it in the music of Miles Davis, Coltrane, Bob Dylan. It's uh, Lou Reed. You hear it there so clearly, and it's non-commercial, but it touches the soul, and that's what I was always after. And some small way to become. A poet of the city and to write music and plays that actually touch people. Larry,
2: I've heard you described as an Irish Renaissance man (laughs) simply because you straddle both music and literature. And you kind of refer to the fact from 85 to 89, you took a break from music essentially to start playwriting. Some people would say, what's wrong with you? You have worked hard to establish a real musical career. Why are you stepping away? Why do you think you can possibly morph into a playwright? Is that arrogance or is that, uh, you know, arrogance is probably the wrong word, but but talk to me a little bit about that.
0: Well, creativity comes in a lot of different ways. So. I can do the three things that, that you mentioned, music, playwriting, and novel writing. Um And they, they come from the same source. They're three very different um disciplines. And you really have to learn how to do them. You can't be a dilettante and... Uh, Jump, jump between them, jump backwards and forwards. It's like being a carpenter. You really have to learn the craft. So with, with playwriting, it's play and then W-R-I-G-H-T. It's, it's craft. You know, you, you learn how to do it. And I guess I always wanted to do the three of them, but I find that each one, Adds to the other in, in an, in an ineffable way. I can't even describe it. That when I'm writing a play or a novel, I'm very aware of the rhythm of each character. And to me, character is everything. Well, not everything, but it's the main thing in all three of the, um, the disciplines. Uh, the Greeks used to say, From character comes story. And it's all storytelling. So when I went back into music with Black 47, I had, uh, after um, the major thinkers broke up, I, I was playing some music, but it was all improv. And I was learning how to get up on a stage with no idea in your head and play the first note and let it take you. On a journey in the same way that, and that came from listening to people like Miles Davis and uh, and Coltrane. You know, I couldn't play like them running, but I was using the same concepts that they were using. And uh, each of these adds to the other. That's the main thing. So when I went back into Black Forty Seven, Chris Burn and I made a pact straight away. We're going to be an all-original band as quickly as possible. Now, Chris was working all day as a a detective sergeant with the NYPD. So I set about writing, and I was writing something like two or three songs a week. And when we would be on the way to the Bronx, we would be kind of learning the songs. I would have written the song that day, and I would give Chris... The notes, and Chris had a really strong ear, so I could actually sing the parts that he would be playing on the Ellen pipes, and then we would get up in the Bronx and i would we were using a heavy drum machine at the time, and I would set the drum machine going, I go one, two, three, four, and we 'd start doing the song, and he would remember what the line was that the Ellenlum pipes would would do, and we would play the song straight that night from having written it. That day and that happened for about six months and we were playing four sets a night at the time. So within six months or a year, we were playing all original music. And it was only when, when critics started to talk about the songs that I realized my whole style of songwriting had changed because I had spent four years working on character and, um, story form with playwriting that I was actually doing mini plays uh, within the songs. They were telling stories. And it was a shock to me to read about this story, the way critics are writing about this guy really writes characters and stories. I was thinking... Yeah. Wow. I <laughs> even thought about that. I, I was thinking, I got to go to the Bronx and I might get hit with a bottle in the head tonight. <laughs> um, the guy who wants to hear Christy Moore is going to hear one of my songs instead. You know, these were tough places in the Bronx. And we became a great band because, uh, you had to be as tough as the people in there. Like I remember, uh, we started in October '89. So in '90, uh, Christmas 1990 or December 1990, we hooked up with the Pogues and we went to London to open for the Pogues and at a number of gigs. And we were going out on stage, and the whole place was going. We want Shane. We want Shane. This like a tremendous thing going through a full house. It was their Christmas show. And the, the last thing they wanted to do was hear this man from New York. And I remember thinking, well, uh, it was F you to the whole play. <laughs> I just went over to my amp. I was so used to the Bronx being tough. None of these people were going to get to me because there was security in front of us. And the Bronx... A tough construction worker could come up and say, I hate this shit you're playing. Why don't you play Christy Moore? And you had to stare him down and say, Go fuck yourself. (laughs) And, And be able to do that, you know? So I remember going over to my amplifier and I. But I don't even think, and I just turned everything up to 10. I went over to, very calmly, turned my effects up to 10. And then I hit a big open E chord. And the sound went through this place. People were going like like that. And even years later, I would have people coming up to me saying, you know, you damaged my ears that
3: night.
0: <laughs> and I said, well, you were shouting, we want Shane. You didn't have the respect for a musician. And that was one thing Chris and I demanded was if we come to play for you, you respect us, we're going to play what we want to play, not what you want, what we want.,
3: uh,
1: it's too bad your amplifiers didn't go up to eleven. <laughs> I tried <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know t- t- talk a little bit about the sound of the band, the very unusual instrumentation you know how did that how did you mix those instruments into? Uh, a very cohesive, tight, tight sound.
0: Well, it was very organic. Um, Chris and I started playing together first. Fred Parcells, who is a very old friend, was in some of the improv bands with me uh, as a, a trombone player, and he heard I was playing, and he just assumed it was an improv band. So he he came down one of the first nights and sat in with us. He didn't even introduce himself. <laughs> Uh, and Chris is looking at him. Who's this guy? And then um, Jeff Blyde's wife was a good friend of mine. And he had been playing with Dexie's Midnight Runners. And I met her in a park one day. And she said, You know, Jeff's going up the walls. He's sitting at home here every night and he just wants to play. And I said, Well, send him down. Send him to Patty Riley's. We were playing there at that point. And Jeff came in and said, What should I play? And I said, I don't know, man. <laughs> I can't tell you what to play. Just listen and join in. He said, oh, all right.
3: <laughs>
0: he had a drink and he just joined in. So now we had a, a brass section. But Fred occasionally, the trombone player, used to go on tour with um, uh, with Pierce Turner. And Irish places were used to having a certain number. If you had four people, they were paying four people. They weren't paying... Three people. So we had to have an extra person. And my old drummer, Thomas Hamlin, uh, from Major Thinkers, had gotten into playing African style drumming. And he was also from one of the improv bands. So he came in and uh, he started to do the African style. And then when Fred come ba- came back, he said, I'm not leaving. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and we eventually got a bass player. So it eventually just became what it did um as chris burns said we were the only band without a plan (laughs) and we never had a plan it was like well one thing i I will bring up i've i never considered the band to be celtic rock and one of you introduced us as celtic rock i usually don't even bother anymore um you know disputing it but to me celtic rock was um Horselips and Fairport Convention, and they had done it so well. The last thing, the last thing Black 47 would have wanted to do was to play music that that other bands were playing. And especially, I knew the guys from Lips. I, I knew they were, they were so good at what they did, as was Fairport Convention. We wouldn't have been able to play that style. And we, the, The jazz members of Black 47 had never heard of Horselips or Celtic Rock or Fairport Convention or any of that thing. They just knew I brought in a song and they were going to add to it. So to this day, I don't even know what to call the band, except it's Black 47 type music.
2: It's interesting because clearly what you're doing is kind of being very open to following your creative muse for using a much more, a much overused phrase there. But I want you to talk a little bit about making space for creativity. I've read that you don't like television. I see minimal presence on social media. Um, Is that by design? Uh, So you can really focus. Talk to me a little bit about Larry Kerwin's work style.
0: Well, in some ways, I'm probably the most open uh, person in that Black 47 valued and I value the one-on-one with people. I mean, our fans all over the world had the the right to walk up to us and say, "How you doing?" you know?" And we would talk to everyone, <laughs> and I do reply to every email that I get, and I get. A lot of them. But I don't have time for social media. I, there's actually uh, Tom Marlowe, who's worked for Black 47 the years. He's the one who handles um, even my Larry Kerman Facebook account. And I decided I didn't want... When Twitter came out, I was asked to do it straight away. And fans were saying, you got to do this. But <clears throat> I had no intention of just been describing my day or what's going on that to me is just is so far away and likewise with instagram i'm not in into getting photos i get photos taken all the time because of who i am people take my my photo but i i don't give a goddamn about how i look i never did and You know, Black Forty Seven wasn't exactly the best-looking band in the world. (laughs) We we were never been mistaken for a boy band. Uh. That's what we did. You know, we loved to play and we loved to get up on stage and blow the hell out of the place and have a back and forth with the audience. But a real one, a real we're the band, you're the audience. Wham! There's the music. Give it back to us. Wham! 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 But social media. I find it really destructive to tell you the truth. But secondly, I don't have time for it. Yeah. because you, you can waste your life on it. And thirdly, I think of the people that I admire. Uh, I still admire Bob Dylan. I know Neil Young. Um, had the same manager for a long time. Miles Davis, people like that, Sean O'Rida, they didn't do <laughs> social media. In fact, that you don't know things about them is what's important, mm. so while I 'm open about gigs, I'm totally closed off about my personal life um, it's that's the time I create, and you have to make that decision if you're especially if you're doing the three things that i 'm doing um, that there's very little time because you have to have time for your family and your friends um, and I do reply to every email. But that's on a one-to-one basis. And um and I do mentor some uh writers and playwrights and musicians, <clears throat> but I don't make a, a point of saying who they are or anything like that. I, I because I've had so much experience in in all three of the games that <laughs> I can usually tell people what not to do. I never tell them what to do because that's what they have to find out themselves. And that's, that was the thing with the music too is here, here's a song. You take it. You, you decide what you want to do with it. And I'll always leave spaces and, um, lack of information in there so that the listener can use their own imagination to expand the story and some of the explanations i get of our songs are kind of amazing i mm-hmm. think wow, i hadn't thought about that how cool that you have i wish i had thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey hey larry uh
1: you know in a way here we we've been kind of burying the lead because we're talking to a guy who has a show on broadway up for a 10 or 12 uh, Tony Awards. So so let's move to that stage now. We want, want to make sure we talk about uh, Paradise Square. And, and maybe the way in is uh, when we were first setting up this call, you said something like, I, I thought the world of rock and roll was crazy. The world of theater. So, so maybe you could kind of talk about how this, this idea uh, of this play set in the, in the five points and the draft riots started with hard times at the little adorable cell theater. Uh, and now is a massive, uh, show on Broadway with a cast of about 35 people. So maybe you can kind of take us through the germ of the idea and then how it changed and how
0: people put their own spin on, on the idea you were playing with? Hard times came from so many different places, including my grandfather. Um, he had a friend called Ned Cudahy when he was a boy. And when Ned was 10 or 11, his family emigrated to New York. And the two boys met a pact that they would always stay in touch. and. Ned never wrote back. And this upset my grandfather so much so it was still on his mind 50, 60 years later um, when I was living with him. And he always used to forgive Ned by saying, ah, poor Ned. He probably got lost in the five points. And that set a trigger off the five points. What could these five points have been? And then when I came to New York, I I had studied up a lot on history of the places I lived in. That was one of the things I would do uh, traveling America it was just um, I'm very much into place, what happened there, and because I lived on Avenue B and Third Street, I realized, oh my God, I'm I'm walking distance to the Five Points, and I used to go down there, and uh, I had read up a lot on the place. At that point, and I would visualize where the different saloons and brothels and uh, where different fights were and everything. And around that time, uh, this would have been the late seventies, early eighties, I suppose. I used to hang out a lot in um, the secondhand bookstores around where the Strand is now. It's a, that's the last one remaining, but there were a lot of other ones. And in one of them, and I can't remember which it was, but maybe it was the Strand. I am. Um, They got to know me, and I had no money or anything, so I used to go in there on Saturday afternoons always and read. And they would let me into the rare books section sometimes because they knew me, knew I wasn't going to damage the books. And in one of them, I found a book about a history of New York, uh, of of, um, lower Manhattan, I think it was. And there were etchings in there of the African-American dance halls. And at first I was interested in the bands. Um, I could see the bands. It was always two people and two Irish people and two African-Americans, Irish fiddle player, Irish singer, African-American banjo player, and African-American percussionist. And I used to try and visualize what did they play? How did they know what to play together? And then I realized, of course, I, I'm doing the same thing here. I'm playing with all sorts of musicians. That's New York. Um, But then I began to look at the dancers and I could tell that the artist had something in mind because it was always black man, Irish woman, and they were dancing and they were looking at each other. And it was a look of love and enjoyment in each other beamed across the centuries to me. And I knew that the artist was saying these people were either in love or were living together or were married. And I began to research it and found out that there was indeed a name for these people who were called amalgamationists. And they were hated by the Uptown Protestants, which is what the the Irish Catholics called the Uptown Establishment, um, because this was their worst fear Um, We're going to have brown
3: Catholics.
0: (laughs) That wasn't America to them. And I began to think about that a lot. And then, of course, I realized eventually that this all ended on July 13, 1863 with the draft riots. So I had the perfect thing because as a writer, I always tried to have drama in there. And one way of getting drama is countdown time wise, so if this was going to end, and what I was saying to you about the kiwi playing a part in my life um my my creative life later on was that I always had the idea that the 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 main character in this would be a black woman. why? because I had hung out in a lot of different after hours places that's what i did in the late mid to late 70s early 80s um and the kiwi was partly run by um a transgender woman uh, black woman uh, her name is cardida i changed the name in blood wedding you'll see when you when you play that back. Um, But then there was another place I used to go to up on 147th in St. Nicholas in Harlem. It was called Roses. And Rose was um, a skinny little African-American woman with a soul and a heart that you couldn't, it would hit you across the room, and all all these women they ran these places with a velvet glove, a velvet fist. Everything there was never any fights in there because you knew that if you took a weapon out, you were banned, and word would spread, and you wouldn't be allowed into any uh, after hours place. And that was horror to us at that point. So these places were always run so well, and that's why. I wanted a woman to be at the center of this because I had lived it and I knew I'd be able to describe someone like Nellie Blythe, who is now uh, under a slightly different name. Um, Nellie O'Brien is her name now. But um, so I knew the scene and I knew how to create this woman because I had, I had, Studied under them as a boy <laughs> in, right. in these places, and I don't want to get thrown out. I was on my best behavior, and I was one of the, the, you know, the least dangerous people <laughs> in those places. Uh, so all this stuff came together, and at the same time, going back to the the bands uh, in the African American dance halls, the the mixed bands, Irish and African American, what. What were they playing? I figured the instrumental out because I could tell the way the fiddle player was playing, I thought, and then the percussion player was laying down a strong, different beat than you would get in Ireland, and the banjo player was riffing off what the fiddle player was playing. So I figured that out. But what was the singer singing? Had to be something that both peoples knew, Irish and African Americans, and it came to me like a flash. It had to be Stephen Foster. He was around at the scene. He was in the African-American dance halls at the time, but he was also the most famous composer in the world at that point. So I started to adapt Foster's music for hard times. And a gentleman called Peter LaDon came to see the show one night and he was floored by it and started to show up every night and then he asked me if we could uh, if he could send the music and the the book to his associate uh gar trebinsky in uh in Toronto, who is probably the most famous producer in the world at that point, although he had been had his ups and downs. So, Gart flew me up to Toronto and said, I've done two major works on African American um, issues. One is Showboat, the other is Ragtime. I want to turn Hard Times into the the trio of that. (laughs) I was like, You gotta be kidding me, man. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Wow. how <laughs> he said well you're gonna to have to expand it you know i want to see the schmutz i want to see mm-hmm. the trap right so i said oh because my whole thing had been keep the cast down because you there was only six i think or seven in the play at that point and uh so i was thinking oh so i can write as many characters as i like he says you have to write as many characters as you like uh because we got to do this so i started to write different characters and i put in the um you know, for instance, uh, Annie, the um, the sister of Willie O'Brien, who marries the black um, the black preacher. They were two of my favorite characters because I want to show amalgamation through those two people and other people. So then he brings in Bill T. Jones, the great choreographer, uh, of whom I was a total admirer. I was thinking, oh my god. <laughs> and then <laughs> I got to work with Billy Jones. <laughs> I mean, I've been to see this guy many times as a choreographer. I was thinking, I'm actually going to be in the same room as him. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so then we had to be Irish dancing in there. So we brought on um, Hammerstep. They were friends of mine. And I knew they were the only ones who'd be able to stand up to Bill. Because Bill is, Bill is a genius. But he demands so much from everyone, more from himself. He's very democratic like that. He, he's just amazing to work with. And we brought, uh, um, Gart brought in um, Moises Kaufman, the, the great director. And then um, he decided, you know, you've done a lot of work. We need another writer in here. And we got Craig Lucas in, and eventually Christina Anderson was brought in to really nail the black characters down. In the midst of all this, Black Lives Matter had happened. And so this has been a tumultuous um, creative process. Bruising is one way, but everyone was determined to find the truth in this. And that can cause... (laughs) <laughs> a lot of tumult so here we are and amazingly we all got on well together and jason howland had come in um as a composer too and he has added so much to it so in many ways i had to stand back and let other people in and uh That's not my way in particular, but I learned so much from it. And the one thing I found was everyone loved this project so much, they wanted to add their truth to it. And that's been an amazing, if bruising, experience. But that's the nature, I found out of Broadway, that, you know, it's... Collaboration is the name of the game. it's a big C, and uh you've gotta know how to collaborate with everyone, and if you hear a better idea than yours to say, "Eh, the hell up my idea <laughs> yeah. you you've gotta be able to do that um and we have done it uh Christina is a great writer, and um you know Craig. Lucas is great, and um, we've crafted this thing, but we had such a great cast right from the start. The cast really wanted to be part of it, so they were adding ideas to it too. You can look at this Paradise Square on stage, and you don't have to be looking at the main characters all the time. Everyone in that cast has a backstory has their uh character. It's not like some chorus that comes on just to dance. Each person in it is adding their essence to the story of Paradise Square. And I could be wrong, but from... I've seen the, the play, of course, maybe, I don't know, 70, 80 times maybe now at this point. And from the first five minutes I walk in there, I'm back in 1863 watching these people. And I see these young people in the cast becoming 1863 and becoming the famine Irish coming over here and mixing with the African-Americans who are the only ones who would take them in into the Five Points. And you see that happening on stage. And then you see the split when the whole thing falls apart. And then you see Nelly rallying them back together again. So there's redemption in the end of it. And that was really important, getting the, the ending right so that people, the audience can walk out with a feeling of uplift that this happened once. Um, People put aside their differences and created a new society. It didn't last. America caught up with them, um, but uh, it did happen, and it's a lesson for us in these crazy times. If something like this could happen at the worst possible time in American history, during the Civil War, we can overcome our differences, or a lot of them here right now.
3: Yeah, uh, Larry,
1: you know you talk about. The way you wanted the show to end, and I think Martin and I saw Paradise Square recently, and I think we can both attest to like mission accomplished uh I- impactful all the way through exuberant you'd have to know you don't have to know anything about Irish people or even care about them, but you're gonna get wrapped up
0: in this show, you know another thing that I'm really proud of actually, and it's it's been coming up more and more. we've introduced the Irish language into it. So it's there on for the first time on Broadway, the Irish language, be, because so many of the immigrants who came only spoke Irish at the time. So not just me, but the other creators really wanted Irish in there. And it, I thought it was a great moment that they were insisting, put more of it in, put more, you know. Sort of when, um, when A.J. Shively um, comes on, as a young Irishman, um, Owen Dignan, his very first words are that he sings are America in McCree, America in my heart. So that's caused a, a lot of great vibrations for people who, who love the Irish language. And they're just so proud that there is a show that is, is showcasing it for the first time on Broadway.
2: Laurie, we'll um, I really enjoyed the show. And part of what I enjoyed was the complexity of the storylines that you pull together in the first act. And reading the criticism at the time on the launch of the show, uh, it was like, there's too much in here. You know, there's there's the story is too complex. But my take on it is it's set up really well for a second act where just things kind of barrel together. And what I think you kind of grasped there was the complexity of New York, the density of the lines of life that people actually live. Right, it's not one simple story about the Underground Railroad. It's a story about Irish immigrants. It's a story about poverty. It's a story about the Civil War, etc. And all of these things were happening at the same time. And so you see this kind of criticism that has come out saying it's too much. It's too much. Well, guess what? Get real, people. Okay. Life is complex. uh, And and that finish up, it just just seems so on point to me right at the end, you know, with the kind of racial tension that has been stoked in this country over the last number of years, that this is a message that's incredibly important for the country. It's the play, I believe, that America needs on Broadway right now. So kudos to you. Thanks. Um, I really enjoyed it
0: you know I, I thought I was stunned by the criticism of it I, I could see other things that I would criticize I won't get into them but um overstuffed was the word that I heard used a lot but Charles Dickens who was actually in the five points and wrote about it and was one of the inspirations for it um his his stories and his uh, that are turned into plays are just Teeming with characters, because that's the only way he could uh, depict the London of his day. Uh, we were faced with the same thing. Do you want to tell a nice, simple story that people can go to and two months later you've forgotten about it? Or do you want to make a statement? Do you want to, uh, do you want to deal with racism? Because it's a great sin in this country. It's the original American sin, and it's there. And um, we had to deal with it during the Black Lives Matter thing to reconsider how we were portraying Black characters. And that was a chastening moment for many of us. Even for me, who had lived amongst African Americans, I had to really think about it through the eyes of the young people who were going to play these parts that we were given them. Um, so I'm really proud of it. and. You know, it'll either stay on Broadway or it'll close in, in, at some point, uh, soon. But to me, the, the message has gotten out and, uh, it's there for people to resurrect, um, as we go on.
1: Larry uh, the 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 sad the plight of uh, Martin and and I when we're doing uh Irish stew is we never get to a, a quarter of what we'd like to talk about and I'm afraid we're going to have to just uh pass over one excellent aspect of your story Rockaway Blue the novel Martin and I are both about halfway through it uh it deals it, an equally kind of complex interweaving of characters looking back at it, back at another tragedy from lower manhattan this time 911 uh, so uh
0: if you can give give us 30 seconds on that uh sure it's it's a story of the um the Murphy family from Rockaway Beach and uh, I was trying to capture what it 's like for the people who survived and had to go on after nine eleven and it deals with their son, Brian, who is always the one the first in line and the the brilliant boy in school, how he gets killed, and the family falls apart and then They're trying to pull it back together again when the father, Jimmy, who is also uh, an NYPD detective sergeant, finds out that Brian was actually in the North Tower 30 minutes before the plane struck and realizes he was doing something there. And what was it? And that's Mm -hmm. what the, the, the book is about.
1: It's great. really. It's really pulling us through. And we'll we'll include uh, all the information about the book and your other projects in our show notes. But, Larry, thank you for joining us. We want to say our thanks for offering you a Seamus plug. What would you like to tell Irish to listeners about coming up for Larry next?
0: Well, I want to make an announcement that I have a new musical that's ready to go. And this is the first time I've said it. Uh, and it's on Irish stew. It's about Brendan Behan. It's a new look at Brendan Behan, the uh, the playwright and uh, the the character. Uh, so much has come up. New new stuff has emerged about his life, and I've studied him for a long, long time. And instead of dealing with the drunk, it deals with um, Brendan Behan, the writer, the the political activist, the Irish language activist, uh, the musician and the father of two children by two different women, which wasn't really known at the same time. So, all this stuff and his relationship with Dominic, his brother, and, uh, his relationship with Carl Goulding, who is head of the, um, the IRA. There's just so much about this guy that can be told, and I've written a total new score. One of the great things I found when I was researching what the Shannos traditional songs that Bean used to sing, you know, and and working them out, uh, when I was taking the melodies of them, I took the melodies of a number of them, and when I would think of them in a musical theater way, And put them into a different form. I found that these Shannos melodies made tremendous torch song, 50s kind of melodies. Uh, And so I've run with that. And I think people will like the score of it and uh, like the story of Brendan Bean. And again, it was finding an uplifting way of finishing it. And I think I've done that too, because the finish. Of uh, Brendan being him dying is very sad, but I resurrect him. He comes back <laughs> <So> <laughs> being an Brendan being, never goes away from us. He's an iconic Irish character and he's more important nowadays, actually to musicians, I think, than he is to, um, theater going people, but I want to reintroduce him to the theater going public.
3: Larry,
1: thanks so much. And I know, uh, Beyond the announcement here of your project with about Brendan Bean, we're going to leave with some music from this play. What, what the, what's the name of the play?
0: The play is called the Catacombs. The Catacombs. That, that was a place in Dublin where Bean and Patrick Kavanagh and Peter levy all drank, just north of uh, Marion Square. It was a basement, so I used that as the setting.
1: So let's uh, leave with some music from the Catacombs, and with big thanks
0: to Larry Kerwin. A pleasure, guys, thank you. Oh
4: yeah I always knew they'd come a day I'd head off to the US of A. I long to be in the home of the free with only my genius a compass. Times Square is reckoning Later for Miller O'Neill and Tennessee Marlon Me darling i soon see you sparkling America The beautiful is waiting sous
1: so great to talk to Larry Kerwin. I've known him for about a dozen years, but I found out an awful lot more about him today.
2: Well, I've only met Larry relatively recently, but one thing that jumps out to me right away about him is the fact that Larry is, to use a fancy word, an autodidact.
1: Oh, no. Here we go.
2: Get my thesaurus. Help me out, Mark. What's an autodidact? But it's a perfect description for him, John. An Autodidact is basically somebody... Who learns everything on their own? They're self-taught, and that's what kind of shines through in Lord. And he straddled all these different disciplines: playwriting, music, novel writing. He's not scared about rolling up his sleeves, experiment, and trying figuring out what works. You learn by doing, and that's what autodidacts do. And. I can't imagine a better version of it than Larry Kerwin.
1: And, you know, Martin, those are those are all the reasons that add up to the uh, something we found out just before we recorded this segment of the show, that the Irish American writers and artists, which is a key way I got to know Larry and Larry served as a, he was one of the founders of the organization and was its president. Well, they have just named him their Eugene O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award winner for this year. There'll be festivities for that. and I'll tell you, that is one heck of a party every year in the fall in New York. So there's been a great honor roll of people who have won that in the past, including Peter Quinn, a previous guest of ours. So big congratulations to Larry for this win, this honor probably more accurately, and a great move by the Irish-American writers and
2: artists. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that evening.
1: So, Martin, uh, I think it's time to ask our listeners for a favor. What's it going to be this time?
2: Very simple. The best thing that you can do for the podcast is simply share it with a friend. Amen. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahlo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com.